It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is CEO Bram Kleppner. Bram has been Chief Executive Officer of Danforth Pewter since 2011, after joining as VP of Sales and Marketing in 2007. He successfully turned around what was a loss-making business and led the company to seven straight years of growth and profitability. Under his direction, Danforth has expanded its network of company-owned retail stores and has enjoyed dramatic growth in its online business. Bram recently finished five years of service as co-chair of Vermont's Medicaid and Exchange Advisory Board, providing guidance on various aspects of healthcare policy to several state agencies, the governor, and the legislature. He earned his MBA from the University of Vermont and his BA from Middlebury College. Bram Kleppner, welcome into the corner office. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, great to have you. It's a it's a bright New England morning. Uh, I hope you're enjoying the same weather up in Vermont as I am down here in Connecticut. And uh, fall hasn't quite come, but uh, it's wonderful to be able to kind of get to this uh, part of the year. We enjoy the fall out here in New England, don't we? Yeah, we sure do. Foliage is a, a pretty important tourist season for Vermont and therefore a, a pretty important season for the retail stores that we have here in Vermont. So uh I, I can imagine. I can imagine. As we were talking a little bit before the podcast, your career has pretty much been Vermont-based. So let's start a little bit with your early years. Uh, you know, where did you grow up? Are you originally from Vermont? And, you know, what was your early family life like? No, you know, I'm uh, I'm not from Vermont, which is actually a, a pretty high hurdle to get over. There. <laughs> I can <laughs> imagine. Uh, You're never quite a local, I imagine, right? No, no, it's... Uh, Quite a few generations, I think it, it takes. But my, uh, <laughs> I was born in D.C. actually, and my parents were both teachers. And before I was born, they bought an old farmhouse in southern Vermont to use as a summer place. So you know, from the time I was born, I spent the school years in suburban Maryland and the summers kind of running around the the hills and the woods of of southern Vermont. Beautiful. And uh, uh, was that pretty much all the way through? high school and so forth, and, and lived in D.C. during that whole period before you went to college? Pretty much. Um, you know, my father taught at the university level, so he did take advantage of sabbaticals and years of leave. So we did live, you know, a year in Boulder, Colorado, and a year in Berkeley, California, and a year in Cambridge, England um, during uh, during that period. But, you know, kind of always Home base was uh, Maryland and summer base was Vermont. Brothers and sisters? 
I have one younger brother, uh, a couple years younger than I am. And uh, uh, did you guys uh, both kind of, uh, were you close enough to, you know, kind of be that camaraderie that a lot of brothers have growing up and, you know, Tweedledee and Tweedledum? <laughs> yeah, you know, we were we were really close when we were little. And he's a couple years younger than I am and much more athletically talented and uh, probably smarter than I am, too. Um, <laughs> so, you know, at some point I found it irritating that my younger brother was beating me at all these sports. Uh, <laughs> so it was a, a period of fairly, uh, fairly intense sibling rivalry where we weren't uh, we weren't as good friends. That lasted, I don't know, maybe from the time we were eight to the time, time I was eight to the time I was 14 or something. And then, uh, very typical, huh? I, you know, the, the, the issues were all on my side and, uh, I sorted them out and, and we've been, we've been really best friends ever since. That's awesome. And did he stay close to Vermont as well, uh, as he grew up? You know, he, um, not, not as close, uh, he he went to Yale and then he went to Cornell for grad school and then he lived out in California for quite a few years and then he lived in D.C. for a bit and uh, he's actually now back in New Haven, Connecticut. Got it. All right. He's an, he's my neighbor now. Yes. <laughs> so you mentioned your dad was a professor and your mom was a teacher as well. Did she teach at the university level? You know, during uh, during my lifetime, she mostly taught high school. She taught English in uh, the Montgomery County Public Schools. She had been a university-level philosophy teacher, um, but, uh, you know, those days being those days when she had children in the mid-60s, that put an end to her university career. <laughs> that was a full-time job. Absolutely. Yeah. What kind of influences uh, do you remember your parents having on you, particularly in those early years? You know, their, um, I would say their influences were not the least bit helpful for a business career, <laughs> which, you know, which is to say um, they were both really intellectuals and kind of really believed in the life of the mind. And so we, you know, we talked uh, very hypothetically. We talked, you know, we talked about ideas and we talked about literature and, and that sort of thing. And uh, not very practically, you know, the um and certainly a career in the business world wasn't really something they had ever imagined for themselves. And, you know, they, I'd say, were very good about not pressuring my brother or me in sort of any way, kind of letting us, uh, letting us, us find our own path. But I think, you know, just because um, from their sort of academic point of view, um, you know, pressure, uh, pressure, career pressure, or, or, or academic pressure of one sort of another, I think sort of struck them as vulgar and not something one did. Right, right, right. My, my dad was a PhD and, uh, taught at the elementary and then, uh, was an administrator and yeah, you know, the business career really wasn't kind of one of his top choices for me either. So I know what that was like, did you have other influencers? Were there people that, you know, kind of generated that, uh, idea for you in your life in the early days? You know, just to tell one quick story about my father, my brother was talking to another guy and it turned out this other guy's father was also a mathematician. And my brother said, man, tough having a mathematician for a dad, huh? And the guy he was talking to said, yeah, like there's no one to teach you how to dress properly. 
<laughs> I love it. It That's was great. True. But you know, it's interesting because my father's father was a business person. Um, you know, he was an advertising, he had an advertising agency in New York in the fifties and sixties, you know, sort of very mad men. Um, but you know, he had been an immigrant. He was the first person in his family to go to college and he, you know, really, um, saw education as the way to be successful in America. And so he had really, um, pushed and led his children um, through the importance of education. And all three of his children ended up earning doctorates and going into going into academia. Um, I'm not sure that was his intended outcome. <laughs> I think he may have succeeded a little too well in his own mind at convincing his kids of uh, the importance of, of, of education. But he was, you know, he was a fairly charismatic guy and, uh, and uh, you know, told great stories and was a raconteur and you know, I think kind of that may have sort of skipped my father, who was always a quiet, shy, modest, introspective guy and and uh, and landed on me a generation later. You got the DNA, right. Well, what about your student life? Were you a good student in elementary, high school? So I got good grades, you know, as in elementary school and and sort of in everything except handwriting and behavior. <laughs> and, you know, like, I was good at math. I was not good at sitting still. Um, and, you know, I sort of would say I liked attention and I liked telling stories and showing off and getting in trouble sort of always to, uh, to, to, to get attention. And, you know, I was like, had, had been brought up in a very intellectual environment. So school was pretty easy for me. So, you know, I didn't have to put a great deal of effort into getting good grades in math and English and geography and history and all those things. And uh, so kind of skated through uh, with, you know, good grades in, in those subjects. But, uh, you know, was not a was not the teacher's favorite student by any means. <laughs> well, you'd mentioned your younger brother was good in sports. Did you pursue sports as well? What you know kinds of things did you do outside of class? Music, theater? Yeah. So, um you know, I, I ran competitively through, you know, junior high school, high school and college, actually. Track, cross country, both? Both. Um, you know, mostly cross country. I did track because it was a good way to start training in the spring for the following cross country season. Um, but uh, and I also skied and, you know, did a little bit of competitive skiing in high school. Um, but, you know, took that up much more seriously as a competitive downhill skier in in college. And that was at Middlebury, right? Middlebury. That was at Middlebury. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'd like to say that I was the fastest skier on the team who went to high school south of the Mason-Dixon line. <laughs> All right. Was a category that included exactly one person. <laughs> <laughs> and then what about uh, entrepreneurial things? Uh, you know, did your business interests take you to, you know, the paper route at 10 years old or Selling Christmas cards door to door, you know, what types of things did you pursue, if any, uh, at a younger age? Yeah, so um, in fact, I did start delivering newspapers uh, pretty early on. You know, maybe fifth or sixth grade or something. I started delivering the Washington Post, um, and uh, um, not very long thereafter, you know, maybe age fourteen, uh, started selling programs at University of Maryland football games. And pretty quickly graduated um, to selling Coke. And, you know, the interesting thing about 
selling if you if you're selling programs you took on no risk you know they gave you the programs and then you gave them their money um selling coke you took some risk you had to buy the whole tray of coke before you could sell it so it was a very early lesson on the, the risk reward equation you could make a lot more you could make a lot more money selling coke but you had to lay out cash to get started <laughs> you had to make and, the investment right yeah you had to buy the inventory <laughs> right um, right good lesson to learn and uh, so learned that lesson and, you know, also learned quite a bit about salesmanship because, you know, you're walking up and down the steps in the stadium and, you know, there are 20 other guys also walking up and down with Cokes and they're all sort of saying, Coke here, get your Coke here. <laughs> and there's an opportunity for real marketing differentiation. So, you know, my buddy and I took great liberties with the classic script and, uh, <laughs> I recall on, on one particularly cold day, we we stood up there as as loud as and clear as could be. Said Coca Cola, you've all heard it has cocaine in it. It will keep you warm today. And, uh, I love it. Just, I got a few smiles and probably made a few sales as well. Got a got a few smiles, got a few sales, and uh, and had some fun. And no one ever yelled at us for us. You know the concession uh, at the at the stadium. Uh, I don't know whether they heard about it or not, but we never. Never got in trouble for that one. So uh, probably something you couldn't get away with these days, but you know, <laughs> times no. have changed. Yeah. <laughs> Not necessarily always for the better. Exactly. What, what about jobs? Uh did you work some part-time jobs in high school and college to, you know, kind of work your way through or what type of things did you do early on? So yeah, you know, I had a I had attended a day camp for a lot of years. And when I got to be 13, I became a counselor in training. And then when I got to be 14, I became a counselor. So I taught taught tennis at this day camp in the summers. And it was, you know, in Vermont near my family's summer place. So continued to live there and 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 did that. Um and delivered delivered newspapers all the way through high school. Um, you know, when I got into college. I did have an on-campus job. I worked at uh, the, God, what was it called back then? The computer center, right? Before people had computers, you had to go to a place. And uh, so I, uh, I I worked there doing kind of technical support and helping people who wanted to, who wanted to use the, the machines. Um, and, you know, the summers during college did some working, you know, maybe the first year or two, I, uh, I may have worked at that same summer camp and did some adventuring um, in those uh, in those summers as well. And uh, Middlebury, uh, choosing that as a college, again, your love for Vermont or was there specific reasons why you chose to go there? Middlebury. Um, so so one, I loved Vermont and uh, um, it was in a part of Vermont I wasn't all that familiar with, different part from where I'd spent summers. Uh, and. And there's lots of good skiing nearby. <laughs> Let's get to the real reason now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and you know, even then, it was uh, it was a great school, and it uh, you know I must say it has gotten nothing but better since then. But but even you know even then it was a uh, you know a really good school, and I was interested in sort of international politics, and was interested in you know I'd, I'd gotten. Um, over the years, you know, sort of my love of skiing and, um, you know, I'd spent a decent amount of time hiking as a kid as well in the summers, uh, and that sort of combined to, um, evolve. And, you know, as a kid, I had for some reason been sort of interested in the 
history of Arctic exploration, the dog sled explorers and, and, and all that, that sort of all combined into an interest in sort of extreme cold weather sports and wilderness survival and winter survival and winter camping and all that. Um, and, you know, Middlebury offered lots of opportunities for sort of all of that, all of that sort of stuff as well. How'd you settle on a major? You know, it uh, was a little bit by accident. I, I majored in political science, uh, which was something I was interested in. But, you know, I really became interested in in philosophy. And it just turned out the best philosophy teacher at the school was in the political science department, kind of teaching Plato and Aristotle and political philosophy of that sort. So uh, so I ended up a, a poli-sci major and and studied that sort of thing. And what was the first job you took out of college? Well, it was interesting um, because I took a f- couple of jobs simultaneously. Uh, and the thing that I was, the, my sort of major occupation in those couple of years out of college, um, I was invited to join a team that was putting together a joint U.S.-Canadian-Soviet Arctic expedition. Oh, wow. Cool. And, uh, um, you know, the idea was, to raise awareness of the issues facing the Arctic and to do some research and um, to foster kind of trans-Arctic cooperation among the three countries that kind of have the big pieces of, of coastline on the Arctic Ocean. Um, and it was, it was, it was a great project. And, uh, you know, we went up to the Arctic and trained and we had corporate sponsors and, you know, Rosignol gave us skis and, uh, you know, we, all this gear and it was uh it was uh it was great and, and i actually um took up the study of the russian language as part of that and uh uh but our you know our kind of historic timing was a little bit off because uh as we got sort of a year and a half into it the soviet union started to fall apart and the soviet side said look we've got bigger issues now than supporting this uh you know we got to deal with our country which is in collapse and you know without the soviets there was sort of kind of no hook no media interest so no real reason for sponsors to be involved um so it ended up not happening uh and but it led to you know it was interesting because it led to um you know, by happenstance, and I'd say sort of the lesson looking back is following your passion can often lead to really rewarding work um, because, you know, I sort of found myself having gotten really excited about this expedition and having learned Russian and having gotten interested in the Soviet Arctic um, going, gosh, what do I do now? And decided to see if I could figure out a way to go spend some time in the Soviet Arctic, even without this big expedition. And I was able to find, one way and another, a guy out in the middle of Siberia who uh, had one of the early private enterprises in that town and thought that he could um, put an American to work profitably. So... (laughs) You know, he issued the invitation to get a visa and I got a visa and packed a backpack and a duffel bag and got on an airplane. And, uh, uh, and you know, this was 1991, um, flew out to a city called Tomsk in the middle of Siberia, um, 
and uh, you know, spent and, and was really, as I said, I was there just to experience uh, the Soviet Arctic and what Siberia was like, and to the culture and the language, and um, so I spent a year and a half living in Siberia, and uh, had all kinds of remarkable adventures. Oh, I can imagine! Wow, wow! But uh, you know, when I decided it was time to come back to the U.S., uh, you know, was now fluent in Russian and English, and didn't really have any particular geography or place to go. And you know, I'd always thought that um, having lived in Southern Vermont and then having gone to school at Middlebury, that Burlington, Vermont, seemed like a very attractive town to live in. So, well, it's a town. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's uh, it's Vermont's only town by uh, some, much, some, right, some people's right. lights. Uh, and so I moved back to Burlington, and you know, at that time, um, had heard that Ben and Jerry's right around '92 was opening a joint venture in Russia. Oh, cool! And uh, I called I called Ben and Jerry's up and said, "Hey, can I talk to whoever's working on your Russian project?" And got a hold of the guy and said, "Hey, listen." I love your ice cream. <laughs> Just spent a year and a half in Siberia. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm fluent in Russian, so you should really give me a job. That's a very compelling argument, Bram. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it almost worked. Didn't quite, but... Uh, oh, no. I don't believe it. <laughs> the, uh, you know, the guy who was managing Ben and Jerry's joint venture and getting it up and running, uh, who I talked to, said, listen, um, we don't have any expat positions in russia it's all staffed locally and there's one job here in vermont working on our russian mission and i'm doing it and that and that's me right yeah exactly <laughs> so uh sorry and i said oh well you know that's too bad but please keep me in mind if anything comes up and let me know if i can help in any way um and you know it just felt like it was meant to be somehow so i poked around ben and jerry's um for uh for any job I could find there, figuring I'd get a job in the company and work my way over into the Russian venture. Um, and there was really nothing available um, other than in the retail store that Ben and Jerry's owned in, in Church Street. So, you know, I got a job scooping ice cream with, with my uh, with my fancy Middlebury degree and my fluency and in Russian. Russian language. Exactly. <laughs> You know, that actually worked. You know, I spent a couple of years working in the retail division and kind of ended up pretty quickly managing one of the company owned stores. And uh, a couple of years later, that guy called up and said, hey, I'm leaving the company. You should apply for my job. So I ended up uh, taking over as the general manager of Ben & Jerry's joint venture in Russia. Tell us a little bit about the first time you started managing people. Do you remember that? You know, I do. I was one of the leaders of the expedition, but it wasn't a formal employee-employer relationship or uh, employee-supervisor relationship. Um, so, you know, the first formal time uh, was at Ben and Jerry's, actually, when I moved from scooper to shift leader. And <laughs> there you go, right. Suddenly was managing uh, the people that I had been been peers with. And, uh, you know... I look back on it and think, you know, it's a good thing that um, it's a good thing that I'm kind of 
curious and like learning. And, you know, it's one of the pieces of advice I give to people who, who ask what's, what's important in a career is, is to, to stay curious and, you know, really develop an, an interest in really trying to understand how things, how things are and, and how they work and what's going on. Um, because, you know, I got interested in, in how to be an effective leader and, uh, uh, had lots of experience at being a bad leader early on in my career to, to, to As grow we out of. Yeah. <laughs> Any lessons from those early management experiences you could share? Absolutely. Um, and I think one of the mistakes that I made was I thought that I was supposed to know everything and have every answer and, you know, sort of wasn't smart enough to say I don't know when I didn't know. And, uh, you know, it's so much a better answer than making something up that may be wrong or, <laughs> right, right. you know, or even maybe right, but you didn't know it. Um, right. Uh, and you know, the other answer is I, uh, the other, the other lesson from early on was, um, the fact that you're not doing people a favor, you're not doing anyone a favor by being too indulgent of them in the workplace. You know, which is to say, um, you know, letting people continue on in a position that they're not good at um, is not helping them out. That's you know, right. You're not doing them any favors. No. I mean, if you're in a job that you're not good at, you know, you're not good at it. And it's stressful every day. And, uh, you know, that and sort of giving people second chances for certain things that, is absolutely appropriate, you know, if they make a mistake, but if they do something outright wrong, like steal from the company, um, second chances are not appropriate, you know, it's because it's not fair to everyone else at the company. So those are some, some early lessons learned. Yeah, no, absolutely. Very key. What's the best or, or perhaps the worst lesson you've learned from previous bosses? And, you know, you don't need to mention any names. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had a, a, a couple of bosses who, um, well, one direct boss and, and one person who was several levels up, but not a direct boss, um, you know, who I learned a lot from because I could easily see myself ending up like them, you know, had some of the same instincts. And, you know, they were guys who just needed to show off how smart they were. And, you know, related to what I mentioned I mentioned earlier, um, were utterly incapable of saying, I don't know, and, you know, needed to talk all the time to show how smart they were, um, and therefore talked a lot and listened very little and were not any good at listening. And, you know, as a result, the people that I worked with on the teams, um, you know, we worked really hard but it was for each other and for our customers. You know, it was really in spite of the, the leadership we had and not, not because of it. No, I, I definitely hear that a lot. Obviously when we talk to CEOs, you spent a number of years at Ben and Jerry's and did you move then to uh, Danforth, your current position as CEO, or is there something in between? Uh, you know, there were, there were a couple of things in, in between. And I was, I was at Ben and Jerry's for 10 years um, seven prior to the Unilever acquisition and, and three years afterwards. And, you know, I had been thinking prior to the Unilever acquisition that 
Um, I'd learned a lot and my learning curve was sort of flattening out and it might be time to, to move to some new opportunity and get challenged in a new way. When Unilever bought it, it suddenly seemed like there was a whole world of, uh, of learning opportunities. You know, at the time, Unilever was a $40 billion a year company with 240,000 employees. And it just felt like, you know, understanding how a company at that scale thinks about its businesses and about the future and about bringing products to market and, and so forth. So I've spent three more years working as part of Unilever. That's a that's a pretty long average, by the way, for someone who had been as long with the entrepreneurial side to stay on with the corporate. So there must have been something there you liked, right? Yeah. In terms of- you know, I'll say to Unilever's great credit, um, they told us when they bought the company, don't let us screw you up. We're really good at, <laughs> you know, they said we're really good at buying brands and screwing them up. Um, <laughs> well, there's honesty for you. You got to love yeah, that. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and. You know, they, for instance, and they've been really good about letting Ben and Jerry's stay pretty independent. Um, you know, even to the extent of a couple of years ago, while Unilever was spending quite a bit of money lobbying Congress um, against GMO labeling laws, they let Ben and Jerry's, their wholly owned subsidiary, lead the charge in favor of GMO labeling. Yeah. So, you know, to their, to their great credit. So one, it, it, was not a horrible night and day experience of going from the, you know, the hippie commune that was Ben and Jerry's <laughs> into working for Big Blue, right? It was a, a, a gentler transition. And there was a, a lot of interesting things to learn from a company of that size and scale and, 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 and scope. Um, so after, th- but after three years, I felt like I kind of understood how Unilever approached their businesses and uh, was ready to do do something else. Um, so I left Ben & Jerry's and Unilever and uh, was a partner in a startup. And this was in 2003, 2004, um, that was uh, doing organic green tea-based soft drinks um, with the basic notion you know, to make soda good for you instead of bad for you somehow. Um, and pretty early into the space. And I think, uh, uh, you know, we had the products right and the brand right and uh, had a lot of things right, but we screwed up a few things and the company grew quickly and then flamed out quickly. Um, but as part of that, the the COO that we hired for that business um, was someone who uh, was a well-known entrepreneur in, in Vermont. and. Uh, had run a beverage business previously, and uh, he and I became friends. And you know, a little while later, he called me up and uh, said, "Hey, I'm on the board of directors of Danforth Pewter down in Middlebury, and uh, you know, we're really looking to grow the business. And the CEO is looking to hire a VP of Sales and Marketing, and you should apply." Oh, got it. And right. This is someone who's. Uh, whose advice and judgment I respect highly. So I uh, I applied for the job and I understand he also called up the CEO and said, hey, this guy called Bram's going to apply for your VP of sales job. <laughs> Be you sure should you interview give it him. To him. <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't think he said that, but he did say you should interview him. Um, so, uh, so, 
you know, landed landed here in 2007 as VP of Sales and Marketing. Oh, that's awesome. So, so you've been there over 11 years. Yeah, got it. So promoted to CEO in 11. That's right. How would you say your, your leadership styles evolved, particularly as you've made your way now to the corner office? So a number, a number of things, and it's an ongoing process. Um, but, you know, I think um, the biggest thing now is that I've gotten very clear that I want the people on our leadership team who head the functional areas in the company, marketing and retail operations and finance and production, I want them to make their own decisions. And, you know, they don't need to come make a presentation to me or to the leadership team and get consensus. Um, You know, I ask them and do the same for the big initiatives that I'm working on to present the initiative to the group and take uh, advantage of everybody's wisdom and experience and to really hear and understand everybody's feedback. But in the end, it's their decision. And, you know, I, I also ask with big decisions, once they've made it, that they explain their thinking so that we can all learn from that. And also so that the people who were against whatever the decision was, who wanted a yes when the functional head decided no or vice versa, understand their thinking, but also understand that their point of view was heard and was incorporated. It wasn't just ignored. Um, and I, you know, I think that's particularly important for me that everyone understands that I've really heard their point of view and understood it and thoughtfully decided to do something different rather than um, unthoughtfully. <laughs> uh, so, and so that's, uh, yeah, that's the biggest, biggest difference that Hands off. People make their own decisions, um, and uh, and you know we want to make sure that everybody everybody's opinion is heard, and that we incorporate that so we make the best possible decision, and that we're able to explain clearly why we did what we did, but we make our own decisions. Now you've been seven, I guess, going on eight years as, as CEO. What are your thoughts about building a company culture, Bram? And and you know what what role does a CEO play in that? You know, I think we started out. Um, our, our company was founded in 1975 by two young artists and, you know, much like Ben and Jerry's companies that are started by a pair of hippies, you know, <laughs> tend to have pretty strong social values. And so that's always been a component, but, um, you know, treating every employee in accordance with our values, you know, we often treat our customers and our community better than we treat each other and ourselves. Um, so that's been a, a real focus, uh, you know, making sure that that um, everybody uh, feels that we're really living living our values. And if we say we if we say we care about families, that we're fully supportive when someone needs to stay home with a sick kid or go to a kid's soccer game or you know whatever it may be, uh, you know whatever whatever they need to do. Um, so we you know we really worked on that. So those are sort of general cultural things. I would also say that I've noticed over my career that um, the CEO's behavior has a big effect on company culture. And a CEO can leave and a new one can arrive and the culture can feel very different in 60 days. Um, so I'm you know, sort of careful to always uh, make sure that I'm also conducting myself in accordance with our our commitment to caring for each other and for our 
vendors and for our customers and for our communities and and for the environment making sure the company is taking taking those 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 actions as well and you know, on a more specific level um you know it just doesn't take many people who are sort of negative and and pessimistic um and like to complain to change the way the whole day feels or the way the whole office feels and um so we have you know been moving more quickly to let let people know that we're you know we really want people who look at everything that comes before us as a potential opportunity and not as a potential problem and you know address it as you know something that's fun and positive and something that we can figure out how to make it uh, a good thing and instead of figuring out all the ways that it might go wrong. You know, I, I mentioned in reading your bio that you've, you've really gone through a period of change, you know, uh, uh, back to growth and profitability. You've made some pretty exciting changes and, you know, the company's electricity grid moving hundred percent solar. You're doing some things with regards to zero fossil fuel usage. These, these feel like pretty significant changes. Did, did you have to kind of change the course of the company? Did that impact the culture was it more continuing kind of with those, you know, types of commitments to social change, but just doing things differently? Because, you know, you don't turn around companies without changing, changing a few things in the way that sounds like you did there. Yeah, that's, you know, that's absolutely true. Um, and, you know, I would say that, um, you know, one of my observations is that business leaders who have success tend to underestimate the role that luck played in their success <laughs> and you know i absolutely understand it right you're in these you're working really hard and you're grappling with these problems and you're making decisions and you're placing bets and things work and you have success it absolutely feels like you did it <laughs> uh, right but the first year we got back to profitability i wrote an annual my annual report to the board and had a section on success factors. And I divided it into two columns. One is here's the stuff we did. And the other is here's the stuff we just got dumb lucky on. <laughs> and the second column was much longer than the first. <laughs> Very humble of you. <laughs> you know, but you know, I have to say like there are all these things, for instance, our stores tend to be in drive markets where tourists drive and, you know, gasoline, Prices had stayed low, um, which made that possible for people to come visit our stores. And, you know, we didn't have anything to do with that. It was just luck. Um, and tin is a major component, and tin had stayed reasonably priced on the global market. And the weather around the holidays was perfect. You know, there was a dusting of snow, just enough to put everyone in the holiday spirit, but not enough to mess up travel, you know, on and on, right? Like, there's a lot of stuff that was just purely pure, pure, pure luck. Um, so, and I would say our success over the past bunch of years has had year after year, there have been a number of things that just, just broke our way um, for, uh, for things to, for things to work, work well. But, you know, the, the sort of bigger question of what did we have to change? And a lot of it is not a, complete change of direction um but an acceleration you know we've always had a commitment to the environment and the technology and the money and things converged to a point where we could build a solar farm 
and we could do the financing with no no cash out and we could you know make it make it sort of all work um and you know another part of it uh has been you know there has been a cultural change um that i alluded to a little bit earlier and you know one of my guiding principles um in finding business success is borrowed from a guy called doug hall who runs a place called the eureka ranch i and used to work with doug at procter and gamble believe it or not there <laughs> i you know go. him well oh, you yeah. know him well oh, i know him well we worked in the beverage division together he's a great guy yeah so you know his sort of mantra fail fast fail cheap um which is to say uh you know no matter how smart you are the world is smarter and <laughs> you know we can look at a dozen designs for holiday ornaments and say, oh, these three look like winners to us. Let's launch them. Um, but we're probably wrong. There's probably aren't the three best. And we're better off launching all 12 and in a year discontinuing the nine worst, and keeping the three that our customers tell us are the Voting. three best. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so we've, you know, we've really worked hard to incorporate fail fast, fail cheap and test as much as we can and let the world make the decisions, not prejudge ideas and not talk ourselves out of initiatives. You know, if we can find a way to test it inexpensively without betting the whole farm on it, let's do that. And, you know, that has really led us to test our way fairly carefully into the transformation of the company from being more than 90% wholesale to being 75 to 80% direct to consumer either on our website or by Amazon or through our bricks and mortar stores. Um, so that, you know, that's been a transformation that we've kind of tested and felt and consciously um, worked our work, worked our way into. And higher margins with that too. I understand some of the profitability growth with that. That makes good yeah. sense. How many employees uh, do you have now at Danforth, Bram? Uh, so we have, uh, 75 permanent employees and as we get into the holiday season we will add temporary employees to our workshop and to our call center and to our retail stores and actually this year we're thinking we may um we may nudge above 100 people on the payroll for the first time in our history and um a pretty steady executive team and the folks there high retention rates and you know, companies that typically have that type of social consciousness tend to retain their people better. Do you experience that as well? Yes. So um, we have on our leadership team, there are five of us, um, one person we recently hired and, you know, I had mentioned um, moving the people who aren't, uh, you know, sort of aligned with positively embracing change and growth into other positions. So um, we did have an opportunity to hire a new retail director uh, in the spring. So he's a new addition. Our marketing director is uh, now, I think, four years into her tenure. Um, and the next most junior person is me, who's 11 years in. <laughs> yeah, it tends to go pretty steep from there, I imagine. <laughs> our, our production manager is 26 years in, and our VP of finance, and actually she's VP of everything, uh, <laughs> to, be, to be fair, uh, she is 28 years in. Wow, awesome, awesome, steady team. They aren't 
by any means our only 20 year plus employee. You know, we actually have a lot of long term employees in our in our workshop uh, as well. What do you look for when you're making bets on the new people? You know, you bring into the organization that you plan to invest in. You know, I'm looking for um, you know above all uh, sort of values and attitude. Um, you know, I want I want people who really care in the broader sense about about the company and about the community and about the environment, you know, who who understand why we put resources towards those things. Um, and you know, I look for people who who as I said earlier, see a potential project or a potential issue as a fun opportunity and not as a wearisome chore um, or a potential problem. Uh, and yeah, I think that's uh, those are those are the most important important qualities. Well, Bram Kleppner, you've been very, very generous with your time. We always have one final question we ask all the CEOs. And you've you've touched on a lot of this. So either you can make it a summary point, or if you've got some new, uh, you know, advice and wisdom, as uh, you know, we talked before the webinar started. Many of our listeners are folks, uh, you know, that are earlier in their career. They're looking at opportunities to grow into the C-suite, perhaps the corner office themselves, or you know, perhaps doing things entrepreneurially, like you've done at parts of your career. What, what career and life advice would you give to those folks who, you know, have their eyes on their own corner office? So I'd say a few things. You know, one is, uh, as I said earlier, stay curious, um, you know, about about everything, about the people you work with, about your customers, about your competitors, about the communities at large. Um, you know, the more you're sort of genuinely interested in those things, um, the more you will learn about them and the better positioned you'll be to be successful in meeting the needs of the people you work with and of your customers and, um, you know, understanding where your competitors are and what they might do and, and, and all those things. You know, I used to work with, uh, a sales guy who, a sales leader who I thought had great, uh, a great insight. He used to say no means either not today or not the way we presented it. And, you know, I thought that was, uh, that was really insightful. And, you know, I keep, I keep that in mind. Um, you know, as I said, uh, don't talk yourself out of things. Let the world tell you whether it's a good idea or not, because the world's a lot smarter than, than we are. Um, you know, work ethic matters, being persistent and, you know, somehow finding the right balance between being stubborn and being flexible. and you know, I don't really have any good guidance on how one does that, except you've got to feel your feel your way into it and develop develop your instincts. You know, for people who want to become CEO, um, you know, for a lot of people, kind of organizational politics is sort of a dirty phrase. Um, but I would say, pay attention to the politics. And and what I mean by that is, um, you know. And it's it's good advice, you know, whether you want to move up in an organization or simply be effective in it or simply um, be a kind human being. 
is, you know, be, be sort of nice and considerate and courteous to everyone. Um, and, you know, don't badmouth people behind their back and, and, and so forth. And, you know, if you can truly put what's best for the organization ahead of what's best for yourself, um, you know, I actually, I, I didn't, I didn't mention this, but there was a point after a couple of years at Danforth where I walked into the CEO's office and said, listen, the company's losing money. It cannot afford both you and me. We have overlapping skill sets. Uh, so one of us should leave. And we talked through whose departure would be least disruptive and decided that my departure at that point would be least disruptive. So I you know, took the unusual career step of eliminating my position and laying myself off. Um, and four months later, that CEO uh, got tapped by our governor to go be secretary of commerce. And, <laughs> the, you know, he sort of called up and said, you're right. The company doesn't need both of us, but it, <laughs> <laughs> now I'm leaving, <laughs> but it does need one of us and I'm not going to be here anymore. So you need to come back and uh, take over the CEO position. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, to, to that extent, and, you know, I, I'd say also be honest that, with yourself as well as with others, really. Huh? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and, you know, the last thing I'd say is, um, that, you know, I mentioned earlier, sort of the learning the lesson that you don't need to know everything and that it's okay to say, I don't know. You know, as I worked with my team and the culture here, my goal was to arrive at a culture where everyone felt enough trust and they felt safe enough so that everyone would feel comfortable saying any of these five phrases. I don't know is number one. I need help is number two. I failed is number three. I screwed up is number four. And I'm scared is number five. And I really feel if you get to a point where people feel totally safe saying those things, um, then you can solve problems a lot faster and make a lot more progress and create a company where everyone who works there is um, really proud to work there and will you know, absolutely give you absolutely their best, uh, the best they have of themselves to, to help the, uh, the company succeed. Well, that's fantastic. Once again, Bram Kleppner, thank you so much for your, uh, sharing your journey into the corner office. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me to join you. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.